You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So there are, there are a few people in my life, I'm sure those of you who've been following Jesus for a while could say the same thing, um, who have discipled me at a distance through their ministries, maybe preaching or writing or, or things like that. And one of those is a man named David Pallison, Dr. David Pallison. He's, he, he just died a few years ago, but he was a counselor, he was an author, uh, uh, a seminary professor. And um, there's so much that was commendable that he, he help, has helped me with. But one thing that he would do that was really unique, every once in a while, whether he was teaching his class um, or whether he was writing for a, a publication, he would write what he called an anti-psalm. Uh, a psalm that is the complete opposite of what the actual psalm says, anti-psalm. And he would do this in order to, to show what life is like if you, if you walk through it completely away from God. So, for example, in an article from, I believe, 2009 entitled, Sane Faith in the Insanity of Life, it's a great article name, Sane Faith in the Insanity of Life, uh, Pallison wrote in anti-Psalm 23, and it goes like this, I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist... I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and the final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me sometimes, it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into void? Sartre said, hell is, for, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. That's the anti-Psalm 23. Now, the anti-Psalm not only shows us what life is like apart from God, right? You hear those differences. It's also something that each and every one of us can relate to, isn't it? If you, if you think about that, you, you have felt lonely before, you've sensed your neediness, you've been frustrated, you've been disappointed, you've been hurt. Not only that, if, 
If you're, you're here as a follower of Jesus, you hear that and you, you know that as, that is the experience of many who don't know Christ. Maybe you've wondered if you can trust anyone ever again, or, or you've doubted if anyone cares. Right? You, we can relate to the anti-song. And so, friends, if, if that is you, maybe today, or if that's been you in the past, you'll certainly experience times like that in the future. This psalm is meant to be a, a comforting lifeline for you this morning. That's what Psalm 23 is. While the anti-Psalm 23 describes this sad state that we can all relate to, the real Psalm 23 gives us this glorious reality. The Lord who provides, refreshes, protects, and sustains, He is with you, Christian. Always. That's Psalm 23 in a sentence. Now, one of the things you might notice as we're reading the psalm, especially compared to the last two that we've done, is that this psalm is profoundly personal. So we did Psalm 1 a couple weeks ago. That was a a psalm of teaching, of wisdom. There was no no first-person pronouns. Psalm 19 last week was a psalm of praise. There were some first-person pronouns at the end as David is responding in prayer. But here, in these six verses, we see I, me, and my 17 times. Do you notice that? David is essentially what he's doing is he's giving us this window into his own soul, a soul in need of comfort and a soul that has found it in God. It's, it's like he's saying, hey guys, I have this, I've been keeping this prayer journal and I just want you to read this entry. And you're like, uh, that sounds kind of personal, right? That's what this is. David is, what he's doing is he's showing us here what it looks like to bring all of ourselves to God. Now, this is, that's actually what the whole theme of the Psalms is. That's what it teaches us. The Psalms are my, by far my favorite book of the Bible. Are you allowed to have a favorite book of the Bible? I do. So it's the Psalms. Um, Martin Luther calls it a little Bible. He says all, all of the gospel truths, everything is in there, right? And I agree with that. But I was thinking about this this week. Why is it my favorite? Because I'm like a music-y guy, you know, and artsy people like Psalms. Eh, I don't think that's really it. Um, but So I was thinking about this, and I, I think I have an, an answer. My tendency, this is why it's my favorite, my tendency, I don't know about you, my tendency is when I see a problem in my life, whether it's in the way I'm feeling or something in my life, my tendency is to go, first thing, how can I fix this? Right, what do I do? Show me what I have to do to practically make this right. I'm anxious, how do I stop being anxious? I'm in conflict, how do I resolve the conflict? I'm suffering, how do I get rid of the suffering? That's how I work. I think that's how many of us uh, tend to work. But in the Psalms, in Psalm 23 in particular, that's not the first step. Instead, instead of first trying to fix the problem, Psalm 23 shows us that the first step is not go fix the problem, but flee to a person. Namely, the one true God. Go straight to God with your problems. That's step number one. With whatever you're experiencing, whatever anti-Psalm of your life, go to God. And that's what David's doing here. So this, this psalm answers the question, okay, how do I invite God into the, the anti-psalm of my life? How do I invite God into the anxiety, into the, the conflict, into the, the suffering or whatever it may be? And so as we work through this, um, we're, we're really just going to make four observations about the Lord. Because even though this is a profoundly personal psalm, 
17 I, me, my's in six verses. Notice that the, the hero, the one who is doing all of the work of this psalm, is the Lord himself for David. Okay? So four observations about the Lord from Psalm 23. Number one, the Lord provides. Number two, the Lord refreshes. Number three, the Lord protects. And number four, the Lord sustains. And there's really just one goal this morning. I will not give you any Here's what you do applications. They're not in this text. The one goal this morning from Psalm 23 is that your soul and my soul would rest in the truth of Christ's loving care for you. Okay? So number one, the Lord provides. The Lord provides. Look at verse one. The Lord is my shepherd. Let's just stop right there halfway through. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, there are two metaphors in this psalm uh, that, that are used. The, the, the first is that of a shepherd. Okay, that's verses 1 through 4. And the second is that of the Lord as a gracious host. Okay? Now, a shepherd is simply one who cares for a flock of sheep. This is not an op- occupation well known to us. It certainly was to the Israelites. David was himself, if you remember, a shepherd before he became king. And this imagery of God as a shepherd <clears throat> is common to the original readers. So, so the, the first reading of this psalm from the Israelites, from God's people, would have made complete sense to them. And we see this elsewhere in Scripture as well. We see it in Psalm 78 where Asaph, who wrote that psalm, writes of God as a shepherd of his people when he delivered them from Egypt. He's looking back at the Exodus and, and saying, you were like a shepherd and we were like the sheep. Psalm seventy-eight fifty-two says, then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Psalm seventy-eight seventy-two. <clears throat> the psalm ends with, with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. So here, David is picking up on that, but mostly the shepherd imagery is used for the people of Israel as a whole. But what David is doing here is he's saying, listen, not only does God lovingly care for his people, his chosen people, Old Testament, Israel, New Testament, we'd say the church, but he has a specific loving care for me individually, right? It's not a general shepherding. He's saying, the Lord is my shepherd. And notice also that he's he's very confident in this statement. The Lord is my shepherd. Not the Lord, not I I hope the Lord will one day be my shepherd. Or, Or, you know, maybe if I can muster up enough goodness this week and read my Bible enough and pray enough, maybe then the Lord will be my shepherd or, or not, you know what, the Lord was my shepherd, but then I, I messed up, and now he's not my shepherd anymore. It's not what it says. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, some of us, I think we really, I think we really struggle with this. We know God loves us, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Right? Like, that's a, that's a truth that we know here theoretically, but we sometimes, we, we sometimes wonder, okay, I know he loves us, like he loves his people, he loves the church, but does, may, maybe he's just reluctant in his loving care of me because I'm a screw-up, or because, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm still battling that one sin after all these years, right? 
So, so we have, what happens is we have this idea in, in our minds of God as a, a loving God, a caring shepherd, but then we look inward and we see our own failings and that we don't measure up. And so we say, well, may, maybe he's a little reluctant in his love and care for me. And this phrase, friends, David is saying, no, 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 the Lord is happily, not reluctantly, continually, not sparsely, my shepherd. Full stop. He's tending to my needs. He's caring for me. And remember who's writing this. We don't have time to get into this, but this is a man who is not only a man after God's own heart, but who also committed some of the most grievous sins you can imagine. If anyone could sin himself out of the presence of God, it would have been David, but he's saying, no, 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 no. The Lord is my shepherd. Now that's who he is. That's verse 1a. And as a result of this, second part of verse 1, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now we use the word want to speak of desire. That's how we use it today. That's not how uh, the, the psalm is using it here. Want here means lack. So you could rightly translate this verse, the Lord is my shepherd, and as a result of his shepherding, I lack nothing. You could write that in your Bible. You don't have to cross out, I shall not want. It's fine. But right above it, I wrote it in my Bible. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. <clears throat> Same language here in Psalm 23 is Deuteronomy 2.7, where Moses says, These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Same phrase. Or later on in Psalm 34, David writes, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Same phrase as Psalm 23, 1. Now, as you think of this imagery of shepherd and sheep, right? That's what David is saying here. The Lord is my shepherd, I'm a sheep. We're the sheep in this. You might say, well, wait a second. Sheep lack a lot of things. And that's true. Like, there's a reason none of us have pet sheep. Like, that's why we, there's a reason we went through dogs, like, that's the, 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 the pet of choice. Some of you are cat people, whatever. But sheep lack a lot of things, right? They're not good at directions. They get lost very easily. They lack the ability to defend themselves. <laughs> Think about this. A sheep cannot fight when in danger. They have no claws or fangs. They can't flee from danger because they're slow. Can't run fast. They don't have wings. They can't fly away. They can't intimidate uh, predators by growling or hissing? Have you ever heard a sheep bleat before? Like, bah? Nothing intimidating about a, a baaing sheep, right? So you might look at a, a sheep and say, they lack a lot of things. In fact, what happens is, maybe you've heard a sermon on this very popular passage saying, oh, you know, Lord's the shepherd, we are sheep. Sheep are stupid, and we're like sheep. I don't, I don't think that's actually true. Like, if you want to do a deep dive and study sheep, you'll find the problem. Here's the thing. They're not stupid. This is so important. They're not stupid. They're dependent. See the difference? On their own, they lack everything. This is why this illustration is, is, is a biblical favorite of shepherd and sheep. On their own, sheep lack everything, but under the loving care of a shepherd to lead and guide them, they lack nothing. So not only is shepherd a great metaphor for 
for our God, but sheep is a great metaphor for us because the same is true with you and me. You may hear that phrase and say, okay, I lack nothing. What are you talking about? I, I have a long list of things I lack. I lack wisdom to deal with this conflict. Right? I lack courage to speak the truth of the gospel to this friend. I lack the desire to fight the sin. I lack patience with others. I, I have a hard time waiting on God. I lack money. I want like all of these things. You can go, here's my list of, of lack. Let me pose a question to you though. Could it be that the reason you feel so much lack in your life is because you're leaning upon your own self-sufficiency instead of leaning upon the good shepherd who lacks nothing. See the difference? We're created, we were created to be dependent upon our creator and provider. We're not created to go off on our own. So when a, when a sheep goes off on its own, bad things happen. Likewise, when we live independently, of our shepherd, of our God, who loves us and cares for us, we lack everything. But when we depend upon Him, we lack nothing because He has everything and we belong to Him. He gives us all we need. I think Paul's words in Philippians chapter 4 on contentment pair really well with Psalm 23.1. Listen to what he says, Philippians 4.11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. Do you hear what he said? He just said, I have no lack. For I have learned in whatever situation I am, uh, whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Okay, how did he learn that? Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the Apostle Paul saying, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Therefore, I am content. Philippians 4, 19, a little later in that passage. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus to our God and Father. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, here's the logic of verse 1. If the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And if I lack nothing, it doesn't mean I get everything I desire. That means He provides what I need when I need it as a good and sovereign God. But if I lack nothing, I can be content whatever comes my way. He provides with Him. I, I lack nothing. Without Him, I lack everything. The Lord provides. Number two, the Lord refreshes Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I'm going to stop halfway in verse 3 for a moment. Now taken together, verse 2, the first part of verse 3, these show us that the Lord gives both physical refreshment, verse 2, and spiritual refreshment. First part of verse 3. You guys see that? That's really important because sometimes, I think historically, Christians have uh, demeaned the physical and, uh, and exalted the, the, physic, the spiritual. Right? And this shows us God, has, God cares for us holistically. He has made us. We are both body and soul as His image bearers. 
So let's consider the physical refreshment first. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now this doesn't mean, <laughs> when you read this, for I get the picture of like the shepherd like putting a sheep in a, a sleeper hold, you know, and like, I'm going to make you lie down. You know, that's, that's not what's happening here. That phrase makes me could sound like that. Um, but, but what he's saying is, you know, sheep sleep well in good and safe conditions. And so the good shepherd provides those good and safe conditions that the sheep may rest. Lie down refers to, to sleep and rest. I think of putting my, my three-year-old, I think of putting Jude to bed. Right? I can't just say we're not at, the, at the, the, the age yet where I can just say, all right, buddy, go to sleep. Those days are coming, and I long for those days, but right now, it's a, it's a whole thing, right? We, we have to put him, you know, put him in his pajamas, turn the light off, turn the nightlight on, turn on the sound machine because we've got a bunch of kids and it's loud in our house, right? You know, it's got to be nice and cool in there. Got to sing a song right now. His, his song of choice is Amazing Grace, right? And you're sort of making him lie down, right? You're making him go to sleep, and then I've got to lay with him until he falls asleep, right? I'm, I'm making him lie down in and rest. As a, as a father loves his child and thus ensures refreshing rest for the child, so God refreshes us. I think of Psalm 127 too. says, he gives his beloved sleep. So, so in essence, this is saying that a good night of sleep is biblical. It's a good gift from God. He makes me lie down. That's what David is saying. I think of Jesus asleep uh, in the boat during the storm on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. They're, they're fearful for their life. They're completely anxious. There's this huge storm, understandably so. We would, we would all be doing the same thing. But where is Jesus when that's happening? He's like in the hole, just taking a nap. They're like, we're going to lose our lives and you're sleeping. Why is he doing that? Because he's the Lord of the wind and waves. He's not concerned about it. So think about this, and maybe this is an acute struggle for you. When you can't sleep at night because the thoughts are racing, you got that work project, you got that, that bill, how are we going to pay that bill? Whatever it may be, this conflict I'm, I'm having with my friend or my, my spouse, whatever it is that keeps you up at night, that sin that you feel like you, you can't defeat, remember these words, your shepherd who is sovereign, just as Jesus is sovereign over the wind and waves, your shepherd is sovereign over the work projects, the bills, the conflicts, over everything. And he makes you to lie down in green pastures. Trust the Lord and rest well. We fall asleep because God is the God who never sleeps. And the physical refreshment continues. It's not just sleep here, lying down, but also that phrase green pastures were not only for for sleeping, but they're also for eating in the still waters for drinking. David says this elsewhere. He says in Psalm 145, 15, the eyes of all look to you, God, and you give them their food in due season. So in Exodus, just as, as God shepherded the people, He also miraculously gave water to them in the wilderness. Remember that story? And he also rained down this manna, this bread from heaven. We see that in both of those in Exodus 16 and 17. And David is here personalizing this and he's saying, God, you are the one who refreshes me by meeting my basic physical needs. Do you guys see that? He's saying, God, you provide sleep, you provide food, and you provide provide drink. You provide my basic 
physical needs. Now think about that the next time you eat and drink or lay down to sleep. What is the Lord doing when you go to bed tonight, when you enjoy that meal this afternoon? The Lord is doing Psalm 23-2 for you and I, Christian. What an incredible thing. We didn't do that. God provides it. He refreshes us physically, but also, in addition to the physical refreshment, the Lord also gives spiritual refreshment and restoration. First part of verse 3, He restores my soul. That prefix re means to, to, to bring something back again. It implies that something has been lost or deteriorated, right? So if, you need to, if you're going to restore a building, what are you trying to do? It was once this nice building, then there were some issues, maybe there was a flood, there was damage. Now it needs to be restored. It needs to be brought back to its previous state. So in terms of shepherding, if a sheep was sick or, or wounded, it would need to be tended to and cared for until health was restored. So, so when, David said, when David uses that word restore, he's admitting something here. Something that's true of all of us. He is saying, my soul needs restoration. It's true of all of us. My soul is not always in the place it should be. Sometimes I'm sinned against. Oftentimes I commit sin. I go through suffering and my soul is weary and it needs to be restored. So, so here's a question that we ask then. Okay, how? We, it's easy to say, here's how we receive that physical refreshment, right? We sleep. We take care of our bodies, we eat, we drink water, all of those things. But how do I receive this kind of refreshment, this soul restoration? Well, friends, we, it's very simple. We come to the Lord Jesus with empty hands of faith. It's like the hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. To, to have your soul restored, take advantage of the ordinary means of, of God's Word and prayer and gathering with God's people. We simply receive the grace of refreshment, okay? Now, you might say, well, where's, where's Jesus in this verse? You're bringing Jesus into this. This was 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Well, let's pause for a second and consider every one of these images we've considered thus far in the psalm because all of them find their full meaning in Jesus Christ. We see in John chapter 10, verses 14 through 15, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. God's saying, I'm the, Jesus saying, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who shepherds you. What about water? John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What about food? That's what grass refers to. Well, the most common metaphor for, for uh, image of food in the Bible is bread. What does Jesus say in John six thirty five? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So David says... God, you give me rest. You are my shepherd. You feed me. You provide water for me to drink. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus says, I am the living water. I am the bread of life. So friend, if we want to be restored, if we want souls that are restored, then we come to Christ in faith. We come to Jesus in faith. We heed the words of, this same question was asked at the first sermon 
of the church. Acts chapter 3. They hear the gospel preached, and they say, what do we do? And the apostle Peter says, Acts chapter 3, verse 19, repent therefore, listen to what he says, repent, that's a good word by the way, our culture doesn't like it, but it means to turn from sin and self-rule to Christ and His rule, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Peter says, when you come to Jesus, and you don't try to bring, you know, this, this resume, you got Jesus, here's what I've done. What do you think? Is that enough? No, no, no. When you come to Jesus in repentance and with the empty hands of faith, you experience refreshing for your soul. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, and this is a, a continual coming. Yes, when we believe the gospel, our salvation is secured, but also we continually come to Jesus for refreshing. That's why he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord refreshes us so we can find rest in Him. Number, number three, the Lord protects. The Lord protects. So second, second half of, of verse three now, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So as a shepherd leads his flock on certain pathways, so the Lord leads us to live a, a righteous life, a life that glorifies Him. It's what it means for His name's sake. All we do is for the glory of God. But notice that these two are paired together. Right after paths of righteousness, we also see the valley of the shadow of death or the valley of deep darkness. Both of those translations are fine. Those two are placed, I, I, I believe that those two are placed closely together to show you, to show you and I, that you can't follow the Good Shepherd on paths of righteousness without also walking through valleys of suffering and struggle, right? Those two are together. The idea that following Christ means your life circumstances are guaranteed to improve or you're, you're going to become more healthy and, and wealthy and things will get better, that's, that's an American addition to Christianity that has, you cannot find that in the Bible. It's really no Christianity at all. David says, even though, not if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So he's expecting that as he follows the Lord, he's going to walk through deep valleys of suffering. So friends, there, there are times in your life as a Christian where the path of righteousness, following Jesus, doing what Jesus has commanded, living as you're called, will also be the valley of the shadow of death. And, the, and that phrase is this poetic way of describing the most dangerous situations we can find, our in, find ourselves in. I think it's so important. Because some of us, what happens is we trust the Lord, we're happy with the Lord, and then trials come and we say, where is God? And David is saying, if you follow Jesus on paths of righteousness you will also walk right with Him through the valley of the shadow of death. Expect suffering. Expect difficulty. Expect persecution. Paul tells Timothy, 
anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted, right? This valley was a, it was a dangerous place to travel through. Why? Because the light of the path is overshadowed by, by peaks around. There can be ambush from wolves, from, from those who are hunting sheep, right? So I haven't walked through a dark valley maybe ever, but those of you who are hikers may experience this. I think a, a more relatable uh, picture would be like a, walking through a dark alley at night in a bad part of town, right? We know, we know what that's like, right? So what, what might that look like for us? It might be a season of depression, discouragement. Might might be come in the form of crushing grief at the loss of, of life of someone you care about. It might be, it might be the scars of, of trauma that you've experienced. It might be financial crisis, sickness, conflict, overwhelming anxiety, or ultimately the ultimate sort of valley of the shadow of death, is death itself, something we will all face one day. And David tells us here that there is an antidote to fear in those moments. Why doesn't he fear? Friends, this is actually the key phrase in this entire psalm. Why doesn't he fear? For you are with me. See that? For you are with me. How does our God protect His children as they walk through trials? He assures us of His presence. You're never walking through those things. Though it may feel like you're alone, you're never walking through them alone. Did you know, I think I heard this before, but um, I was surprised by it this week. I was reminded of it. Did you know that the most common command in all of the Scriptures is some form of do not fear? Do not fear. And the reason for that is, is because the foundation of that command stands on the promised presence of God. Not do not fear because you can handle it. Not do not fear because it's not that big of a deal. No, do not fear for I am with you. Right? Say you have to walk through a dark alley late at night. You know, maybe you're coming back to your car after the Ed Sheeran concert or something like that. And, and, uh, and, and you're, you're alone and you're terrified because you're in a bad part of town, what would make that situation better if you had a friend with you? It just, it's amazing. It might seem small. Your friend probably doesn't know how to fight off assailants, right? You're probably still really in just as much trouble, but you're like, somebody's with me. Parents, when you send out teens to go hang out, you're like, buddy system, right? We don't want you going through those things alone, right? It, ma- it makes sense. There's sort of strength in numbers. Well, friends, God is with you in your trial. And not only that, he actually has the tools to protect you in the trial. The rod and the staff. Did you see that? This rod was a weapon that was used to, to guard the flock in the face of danger. The staff was used for, for guiding and prodding the sheep to go the right way right, when they're lingering too long in an unsafe place. David's saying that's who God is for you. Not only is He with you, but He has the power and, and the, the skills and the tools to make sure you are safe as you walk through the valley of darkness. So friend, ask yourself, do I believe that no matter how great the trial, no matter how, how dark the valley, that the all-powerful God of the universe, my shepherd, is walking with me through it? That he's comforting me, guiding me, protecting me, leading me through it, even though I can't see what's ahead. And if that's true, which it is true, friends, shouldn't that be enough to see us through the trials? 
whatever the outcome. The German uh, reformer, Martin Luther, was a man, he was, he was accustomed to his own valleys of, of darkness, and he would experience seasons of deep discouragement, and sometimes for extended periods, periods of time. And one of those occasions, he was, he was in one of those valleys, and his wife, Catherine von Bora Luther, she wouldn't, she tried to counsel him, encourage him, and it just wasn't working. And she'd really, she really had enough of him, like, moping around. He wouldn't take any of her counsel. So, out of love, this was her plan. She went into to the house, and she put on her funeral clothes, right? Just all black garb, veil, and everything. And then she went into where Martin was, studying, and she just, she just stood there in silence in her funeral clothes. And he lifts up his head, seeing that his wife is, is dressed in all black funeral clothes, and he, he says, what happened? Are you, are you going to a funeral? And she said, no, but since you act like God is dead, I wanted to join you in the morning. That was, <laughs> right. I'm not, I'm not advising that method of counseling those who are discouraged. The Luthers were of a different breed. But you know what? He got the point. The Lord used that to sort of wake him out of this stupor. See, the temptation for you and I when we're going through hard times, dark valleys, is we start living like practical atheists. We know God's real, but we're acting as if we are alone. We're acting as if He's not there. We're acting as if God is dead. We get overwhelmed by unanswerable questions, right? How long will this last? What will the future hold? Why is this happening? And we forget that the most important question is already answered. Who is with me? The Lord Jesus Christ, who will see me through? Your good shepherd. He'll see you through. And how do we know that that promise is true? Well, friends, we know this is true because Christ himself has walked through the valley of the shadow of death. He's done that for us. When he endured the cross, John 10, he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He too was delivered by the power of God when he rose from the dead. He will never leave you or forsake you. And here's the good news. One day, if you're in Christ, Christian, this is such good news. One day, there will be no more valleys of darkness. All the mess of sin and suffering, our sin and the sin that comes against us, all of it will be done away with and you will enjoy his presence with fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's not a maybe. That's a guarantee. Right? The Lord will protect you. He will walk with you through that valley. So you need not fear. Now, fourth and finally, the Lord sustains. The Lord sustains. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay, so here we see that image change, right? From shepherd, um, the Lord is shepherd and David is sheep, to the Lord is host of a dinner party, and David is the invited guest. We're told that the Lord sets this table for, for David in the presence of his enemies. Now, that might seem strange to us. None of us are like, you know what? I think I want to go have dinner with those who hate me. So what does he, what does he mean here? He's likely referring to this feast on a battlefield after victory in which the captured enemies are looking on. So it's a way of saying, you give me victory over my enemies. David's head's anointed with oil. 
in the Scriptures. Grief and sorrow are marked by covering yourself with, with dust and ashes, but joy and satisfaction are marked by anointing with oil. So you get this picture of God as inviting David to this, this dinner feast, and He's anointing His guest, which is a sign of honor for the guest. Now, a fully literal translation of you anoint my head with oil would be this. You make my head fat with oil. I told the 10-year-old that yesterday. I thought it was funny. He's like, that's, that's pretty funny, right? Uh, that seems strange to us, but something being made fat means it was, it's been lavished with rich provision. Do with that what you will, right? But that's the biblical picture there. And David says, my cup overflows. This cup is metaphorically in Scripture, used to talk about someone's lot in life. So he's saying the Lord fully gives me victory and pours out His blessing on me. You see, the psalm is teaching us, you're going to face dark days, you're going to go through valleys, but the Lord will sustain you through them all the way to the end, and He will bless you, right? You're going to face enemies, but the Lord will bring you victory. Why? Because the Lord is with you. He will sustain you. His goodness and mercy will follow you. That word follow is actually pursue you, almost like chasing after you. Like you can't run away from His goodness and mercy right into eternity. So what David's doing here, he's ending the psalm by just delighting in the satisfying and sustaining grace of God for him. He's just saying, this is incredible what the Lord does for me. The Apostle Paul speaks of, of sustaining grace in this way in Philippians 1.6. He says, I am sure of this. You hear that similarity? Surely, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Or as Jesus, the good shepherd, says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will will snatch them out of my hand. So the psalm ends by, by David saying, every good blessing here, the provision of the Lord, the refreshment of the Lord, the protection of the Lord, His presence with you is something you cannot lose even if you try, if you're in Christ. This goodness and mercy will chase you down through your life. What a comforting reality. On Thursday this last week, we were at the soccer field for soccer week, and I was, I was keeping an eye on, on Jude, the three-year-old, and he was fidgety, which I feel, feel like goes without saying, but he was, and he was getting kind of antsy, so I took him, there's these, these path, uh, walking paths over there off of Trapello, really beautiful, and so we, we went for, for a walk, and um, he's not really into holding hands right now, you know, but he needs to, it's like you got to hold him constantly, but he thinks he's... 25, you know, so, so he's not really letting me hold his hands as we're walking along this path, and it's starting to get narrow, and, and there's, you know, there's muddy spots, and there's some ditches, and then there's some big roots and some, some steeper hills that we're, we're walking through, so we'd come to one of those places, you know, there's a, a big mud pit, and I'd sort of just grab his, his hand, and I would do the, the dad glide. Have you guys seen this? You know, you just lift up the kid and glide him over, and then you just set him down, and then he would just keep walking, Right? Set of roots comes along, pick him up, glides over, and then he, he keeps going. We're walking, we're walking, we're walking. And then finally, um, I don't know if this was a diss on my directional ability, but he goes, Daddy, are we lost? And I said, no, we're not. I said, I, I know the way back. And he said, oh. And he just kept going, right? 
Another thing of roots, pick them up, go over, there's a hill, you know. Tripped a few times, I picked him up. He didn't know any, where he was at all, but I knew exactly where we were. He didn't have a care in the world. He was living his best life, right? He lacked nothing in that moment, and he was completely joyful, right? He was protected, he was sustained, and he was safe. Why? Because he was with his father. Friends, if you are in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, your position as explained here in Psalm 23, is not dependent upon your grasp upon him, but his grasp upon you. Your status is not dependent upon your ability to hold on to his presence any more than Jude's you know, safety was dependent on his ability to hold on to me. I was holding him. I was walking with him. I was seeing him through. No, your status is dependent upon his pursuit of you. So when, when you're living, I just encourage you with this, when you're living the, the anti-Psalm 23, frustrated, you're anxious, you're wondering, I messed up too much this week, does he really love me? Am I, am I really in, in Christ because I, I keep sinning? And come to the simple promise of this chapter again and again and again. The Lord is your shepherd who provides. You lack nothing if you trust in him. The Lord refreshes you. Rest in him. The Lord protects you and will never leave you or forsake you. Fear not. The Lord will sustain you to the end. Think on those truths and then exhale. Rejoice. Trust in Christ, rest in Him and His loving care for you, and move on. That's what Psalm 23 calls us to.